The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and I have a great show for you today. Uh, sometimes there there are shows where I say, why am I even, uh, this isn't work, this is just pure pleasure, and this is one of those times. Uh, our guest today is Terry Rouse, and uh, Terry, as many of you know, is back in Washington after successfully opening the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, Georgia, and she's now continuing her consultation practice to help cultural organizations through times of change and personally I am thrilled to have her back in uh, in my neighborhood we were just sort of sharing some of our our, uh, Nor- our Maryland stories so Terry welcome to the show today oh thank you welcome I'm so excited to be here today thank you uh, well, Terry, I I am uh, not going to. I could. We could spend the whole hour uh, of me just going through your very uh, rich resume and your many accomplishments. So I'm going to uh, instead. I'm going to ask you to just share with our listening audience your career trajectory and particularly what experiences have propelled you to where you are today and shaped your attitudes and thoughts about museum practice. Oh, that, that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. You know, I guess, uh, Carol, this is my uh, almost 35th year as, as a museum professional, and some days I feel like it was just yesterday that, you know, I, I started down this, this, this role. Uh, and I think largely what shaped it for me, you know, I'm, I'm an academic, I'm a historian. I, you know, I went to Cornell and Columbia and picked up these miscellaneous degrees in uh in the in the seventies, um, when you know life was a little different, you know you could kind of go and feel your way through um, uh, um, lots of things. And uh, my last year there at Columbia, this was getting the second degree in the um, International Affairs certificate. I was an intern at the Brooklyn Museum. And my job was not to be on the floor. I just would come on the weekend, and I would write pieces about the various African art objects. And it was, you know, it was a good exercise. It was a way to start thinking about how people think in museums. And I wasn't even that literal about it because I didn't really 
have a sense of it, of it. But that experience, and then getting a job at the Studio Museum in Harlem uh, to manage an art collection that was in the basement of the what was then called the Harlem State Office Building, which is now called the Adam Clayton Powell State Office Building. At that moment, I realized something that I had learned through all the stuff I've done, the community work, you know, here I was 26 years old, taking on this project from something that Mary Smith Campbell said, who was the dean, who, you know, who just is the retiring dean from New York University's uh, uh, school. That, uh, and part of that was taking everything you had done before and kind of implementing it. Because as I was sitting there in this, interview with her, you know, 26 years old, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life in New York City, she asked me a very simple question. How would you order 110 pieces of fine art, art, that was left in the basement of the building? This is a result of a percentage for the art program. And, you know, I hadn't been a curator. I hadn't managed the art collection. But what I had done was organize things because I'm a historian. And what I had done is community work because I mean I had worked in the South, you know, I had worked in West Africa, you know, all of these things as a fairly young woman. So I knew how to go and engage people in their environment without being a know-it-all because it's usually about going in and being part of something. So I got a job making a pittance of amount of money, Carol, to organize this collection. And that's, you know, how I, I kind of learned that. I learned to go and do that, acquire new disciplines, go and be part of other people's communities, and advocate for what has to be done, and sometimes take those hard positions, because that's what you learn to do when, when you're on the ground doing sort of community work. Um, that became the basis for everything I have done ever since learning to just go in and immerse yourself in an environment in a variety of topics and deal with it. And because I believe in the power of museums as places for civic engagement, as places to learn about things, you know, as places of safe haven, I've been able to deal with all sorts of different topics because the discipline of that is what fascinates me, the the power to be able to bring people in, to see the look on someone's eyes when they learn something new, or the look on someone's eyes when they don't like what you've done. But all of that, you know, became part of the, the experience for me. So that's, that's sort of how it all kind of started. I hope that makes some sense there. No, it makes perfect sense, Terry, and, and I, uh, I appreciate uh, so many of the things that, that you're saying, and I think uh, one of the great regrets I have for the, uh, uh, the students coming up through school today is that there is such a feeling, almost an oppressive feeling, that they must uh, start on a career track and never look back, and I think so many of us uh, who have have particularly come to the museum fields from from various avenues, uh, realized that we did it for the for the love of it. But we also uh, came from various backgrounds, and we applied the skills we had. And I just love your discussion about you know your statement that why of course I could organize things. I was a historian, uh, and then you know bringing in your your uh, community work, particularly at such a uh, a relatively young age. 
age. Forgive me, I think 26 is pretty young to be doing the level of, <laughs> of, uh, of work that you were doing. Uh, it, but it, that, of course, knowing you, uh, makes perfect sense because you are courageous now. I'm sure you were courageous then. Uh, so the I museum... I a lot of my mind, but yeah, so. Well, I think that's, you know, that's just some other person's definition of courageous. Uh, <laughs> But I think I'm, I am particularly uh, also very, very interested in these terms that you use about still believing so strongly that museums are places of safe haven and uh, civic engagement. Uh, I th- uh, we all say that. It is often very difficult to uh, have organizations um, doing that in, in such times of... of of financial hardships and uh, you know, there's sort of a, what I call the great sucking in of breath. Uh, are you f- and uh, I know you've spent so much of your time recently in Atlanta on, on a very exciting project but as you've sort of you know lifted your head up how are you optimistic? Are you seeing good uh, points of light in, uh, in our museums? You know, I, I am. You know, I'm um, in the next two months, I'll be rolling off. And next month, uh, my five-year term as an accreditation commissioner for the American Alliance of Museums that we used to call the American Association of Museums. And in that period of time, you know, you review lots of institutions, uh, you know, either as reading, visiting committee reports or out there in the field. And I am encouraged. I, I am very encouraged because... I still see there's some institutions that are just still trying to do their little myopic world, and maybe that's justified for them. Everybody in their community knows them, and this is all they do. But you do see many institutions, no matter the size, where their museum professionals, their staff, whether or not they consider themselves to be museum professionals or not, see that their role is to bring things to other people, to have them have a moment, or, or to explore something scientifically, or to preserve something, or, or to make something available to the world electronically, where before it was only, you could only see it in storage somewhere. So I am encouraged that there are more places willing to engage in letting their visitors explore thoughts and explore positions. And I think as a field... We have to challenge more institutions that our job is to help shape people's view, let them explore on their own that, that good work that, they, that, that everyone tells us we should be doing, that you see more people being able to do that. Now, I'll tell you what I think is a mechanism that has helped this along is this whole exploration of electronic media. You know, by having websites, by having, you know, uh, PDAs that you can go explore things in, in, in museums, all of those things help us do our jobs better because it does help people explore. Now, maybe we are tr- clearly giving them far too much information that they could ever, ever consume in the short time that they're in our institutions, but the information is there for them to pick through and to explore and capture what they want to, to capture. To me, it's almost the experience that people used to have, and this is going to sound a little silly, but it's how I look at the world. It's how people used to explore aquariums. You go into an aquarium and there are millions of fish. 
And, you know, you're sitting there saying, oh, man, which one should I focus on? You know, what's this? There's a label here. There's a panel there. But all that information was available to you just kind of swimming by, you know. And in many ways, now every institution has the advantage of having that kind of view of, all sorts of information that people can pick and choose, even if it's an art museum where clearly nothing is moving. So, so that's the way. I mean, I'm very encouraged. I mean, economically, you know, many institutions are finding themselves on the borderline of not being in existence, but for many of them, it's forcing them, Carol, to take that, make that hard decision to say, should I stand by myself or should I stand by someone else, with someone else? Can I shape my mission to merge with somebody else? Can I shape my mission to collaborate with someone else so there's greater audience, there's greater opportunity, there's greater stability, and you're still doing your work? For those institutions, it requires the ultimate compromise, uh, and in that compromise, you know, you can focus on what's important and hopefully get back to what, why you're there. So I'm, I've got a lot of hope. That uh, that spoken as a true community leader, Terry. Uh, that's I think that's wonderful, and I, I agree with you on so many things that you said. Uh, but I love the way you characterize museums as a place to explore our thoughts, uh, and of course that is whether we go to the uh, physical uh, facility, mu- uh, the physical museum, or whether we're exploring it in some kind of digital realm. And that is, as, as David Carr uh, likes to say, uh, we are a uh, the human. Human race is a. Is, are, we are seekers. We are always looking for our place in the world, uh, uh, looking for answers to the questions that that we have. And as museums can begin to open that up, uh, and and not not be so concerned about a tight interpretation as much as using these their their collections and their assets as as opportunities for conversations exactly i mean a, a real conversation sometimes it's a conversation with you sometimes it's a conversation with the person that you you came with uh, in one of John Falk's books, which, of course, I can't bring up the name as I'm talking to you, he's talking about evaluating the visitor experience. So he talks about how some people go to, go to an aquarium, and as he's, you know, doing these interviews and, and trying, they're talking about the experience. Oh, I was there with my mother, and so part of my conversation about the fish I was looking at was my conversation with her. And, or they'll be talking about people came and they went by themselves off, uh, you know, they left their, their relatives, you know, and went off and explored by themselves. And then they had another type of an experience and they remembered other types of things. And, and then he, he goes on in one instance, which I really thought was very poignant, because for living collections such as Botanic Gardens, there was a, a woman he interviewed over several years who talked about she went to the Botanic Garden pretty much to the same areas all the time because it was her way of reflecting. It was her way of, you know, using this as a moment. Maybe she was also engaging with the life that was there and occasionally reading a label, but that was her safe haven. It was her moment. So that was just as powerful a tool for her for not only personal learning, 
appreciating the botanic gardens, but also understanding, well, this is how this space can be used. So I think all of this is, is what we need to be, to be able to do, and the power of it is, is just amazing. From, from, from an art museum, I ran the New York Transit Museum, which is about, you know, subway cars and buses. And I can't tell you, Carol, how reflective that was for people, because this was in the 80s when we were beginning to, to sort of professionalize this uh, under David Gunn, who was head of uh, the New York City Transit Authority at the time, who was there to clean up the subways, learned a lot of very important lessons from observing him over that period of time. But we used to watch people come down to the New York Transit Museum, as we changed the name, uh, which is a actual subway station and what they did was the ultimate experience for everyone because as new yorkers they would stand there on the platform and reflect on their own personal experience with with subways and with buses and it would be good bad or whatever it's about the people they knew the people they didn't oh i remember the straps what happened to the straps but it was the living history of new york city and because everybody has an experience with the subways, everyone has an experience with the buses, because you ride them, you avoid them, whatever it is you do is part of your... So it became sort of a wonderful example of what you can do to engage people with something they never thought would be a story for them, but in fact it was the ultimate story. Uh, it was great. I really, I, you know, I learned a lot from that. And more importantly, the ultimate users in some place, like the New York Transit Museum and other places like that, uh, when you're talking about environment, people are going to an environment that reflects their lives, is the real users were the transit workers. In that case, there were 50,000 of them. I'm not sure how many they are now. They became your biggest advocates in many ways because who were you talking about? You were talking about them. You were talking about their lives. We did an, an oral history program um, where we had generations of transit workers, you know, bus drivers, you know, train drivers, you know, people who worked in, in the booth talking about their lives. So they had someone to reflect, someone to say, this is what I did. This is my part of making this community, this economic engine called transportation, uh, exciting. So that's what I think museums can do. That, Terry, that is wonderful. I I uh, I mesmerized. That's a wonderful, wonderful story. Uh, and with that, before we go on to your next great story, we are going to have to take a short break. And when we come back, more with uh, with Terry Rouse and this uplifting conversation today. Remember, you can always reach me at carol.bossard at verizon.net or send me a tweet at at MuseWrite uh, to let me know what you think about the show, what we should be talking about, and your concerns about museums today. We will be back in a minute. This is Carol Bossard for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. 
Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. And today I have the pleasure of having a a conversation with Terry Rouse. And right before we went to break, Terry was just mesmerizing me with a wonderful story of about her work with the uh, New York City uh, Transit uh, Museum. And Terry, that reminded me that you wonderful stories. You did oral histories with the workers there. Uh, and the uh, this is not a museum that is is dedicated to, let's say, you know, the elite 1%. It is dedicated to, uh, to the people that help us in our everyday lives. Certainly, if you live in New York City or a- actually any place on the East Coast, uh, we, we rely on the bus drivers and the transit drivers and all the people that that keep those those subways and buses running for us and and you know it occurs to me terry that one of the issues that i see as i travel around the country and and you may or may not agree but as i'm talking to people outside the museum field and and often sometimes even board members who still have a a belief that museums are these elite institutions uh, where uh, the rich and famous housed their art or their their uh, 
their their collection. And I'm I'm wondering, Terry, how do you think that we can break? You know, it it still surprises me that this myth continues on in our society. And how do you think? Do you, well, one, do you agree with me? And then two, if so, how do you think we can break that down? Well, first of all, I absolutely agree with you. They are still people. I used to see that on, on Capitol Hill when I was doing the United States Capitol Visitor Center. There were people who believed that museums were elitist or we were leftist, and so therefore we did not, we could not represent things in totality. And often, you know, the, the discussion became you had to explain to folks that our job is to listen to all the sides of the story and to help people enter into a discussion about all of them. Uh, no matter, you know, what your perspective is, the facts will, will speak for themselves. So for how to get a, around people's anxiety about museums, because to me, Carol, it's often anxiety. It, 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 it is you know, the, old, the thing that we used to always talk about. People come into our institutions and they don't know what to do, and they're afraid that they're going to be judged uh, because they don't know what to do in, in, in your institutions. And to have more and more people come in and realize that that person at the front desk is smiling at them is really smiling at them and welcoming them. You know, it, it's that notion that, that that encounter with your institution has to be an open one, you know, that people can come and be engaged in what we do. Now, now part of this drama to make institutions more open became part of the diversity discussion, whether we're reaching out to everybody to have people of, of color or, or people of cer- certain socioeconomic groups come into our institutions because they don't, they don't trust us or they feel uncomfortable in, a, in the environment. But to me, the real story was how do we get people who are, think that they are not welcome in our institutions, and people have written about this, to come in, in spite of whatever you may think may be their preconceived notions about their institution, they have to see you as a welcoming place. That is our contemporary and continues to be our contemporary battle for the last 20 years to have people understand that there are balanced stories that can be had in these institutions. And for museum professionals, we have to have the discipline to be willing to engage in the balanced story, even though, you know, you may not particularly agree with, you know, all of it, but you have to be willing to put it out there. So I think that's our challenge as as museum professionals is to be able to say, hmm, it's okay to have another perspective, and, and I think we're doing a very good job of that now. In many institutions, you will see labels, you will see videos that all will, are willing to say, okay, this is what one group thinks and this is what another group thinks, and, but yet we want to make sure that all of that's there so our visitors can draw their own conclusions. And, and, and that that's, can be on topics is, is the scientific is the issue of, of evolution or a simple thing on, you know, what's childbirth or, or, or is there really, you know, this artist's perspective? Did Jasper Johns really do that that way? You know, what was his inspiration? I think that, that is our challenge is to be able to do that. And for the people who will continue to think that we are elitist institutions, you know something, Carol, I believe that that's okay. They can continue to believe that because we're going to continue to do our work and we are going to be able to 
bring more people into understanding that it is for everybody. And that impacts how we do our exhibits and how we engage people, how we reach out to them in various media. And for that matter, how we talk to little kids when they come into, into the building and try to explain to them, you know, some esoteric topic. But what we're really doing is helping them understand how, how to think, how to, how to have fun and see that enjoyable, how to be enlightened, you know, all of that. So, so I think, you know, again, there's some hope, you know, out there. You know, we still have work yes. to do. Well, and, and, and I think you've, you've raised an, uh, a very important point that it is our responsibility as museum professionals to keep fighting the good fight and saying and doing what we know is right in terms of both civic and civil engagement uh, to welcome all people in uh, into the museum and certainly that involves uh, and includes making sure that that person at the front desk and the people who work in the institution are reflective of the community but I think it also means that we stand our ground when we need to and mm-hmm. if we have a, a, a group of, of uh, very nice people who say you know I want the most cutting edge educational, uh, popular uh, uh, destination site that is a safe haven, that is is, uh, involved in civic engagement, but I don't want it to be like a museum, then it's our responsibility to say, well, let's talk about your definition of museum and see if we might broaden that a bit. (laughs) Right, (laughs) and broaden it just a bit. (laughs) <laughs> Terry, let's let's um, let's move on. You you talked uh, about your experience as, as being um, uh, on the uh, AAM uh, accreditation uh, board and and involved in that process. And I know that uh, that accreditation you have been involved at a time that that accreditation process has really changed. So I was wondering, could you just share with our listeners? And I and as you know, we have uh, many international listeners as well. So if you could just explain a little bit about the accreditation process, what it is, and and how you. You've really seen it it change over these last few years. Well, I think well, accreditation is just the acknowledgement of standards. You know that there are standards, uh, just like there are in, in education and accounting and medicine and architecture. That there are indeed standards that we, as a field, have agreed that these, this is how we approach fundraising, mission, and vision. These are best practices, if you will. So they're tools. You know, things, they're aspirational in the sense that everybody's best practices, goals aren't the same, but the kernel of what is considered to be a best practice is the same way it would be in any form of, of education and professionalism. So I think what, what has been happening over the last five years as uh, accreditation has been maturing and is we're taking something that people saw as being overwhelming. Oh, we can't possibly do that well. You know, it's just overwhelming to realize, oh, it's not. It's just best practices, which you're probably doing anyway, but it's the language of how you're doing it. And there might be something else in a best practice that you didn't know about that you can implement that indeed can help you do what you have to do. You know, the American Alliance of Museums always had MAP, the Museum Assessment Program, which was the opportunity for institutions to reach out to the field 
to get someone to come in and help them, you know, do something a little different, to evaluate what they're doing, to learn. Oftentimes it was about learning and to have light bulbs go off on any variety of topics. That was the field helping the field. The same way it's done in medicine and education, I mean, all of those, all of those things, helping the field. So accreditation is just the opportunity for an institution to have its professional staff go through an exercise of, of aligning the things in the profession. It's many ways no more difficult than doing a, a huge federal grant, if you will, or if you're doing National Science Foundation or if you're doing local community grants. You're still doing the same discipline of looking at what you're doing, aligning it what you know should be the right things, coming up with a way of evaluating that, and then what people see as most difficult, Carol, is putting that in a format that other people can consume. So what has happened with accreditation, thanks to the hard work of, of, the, of the staff, is they've come up with a way to make that easier by having a form that you can go in and check off and say, we have this and that, and you still have your supporting material. So the 21st century and technology has allowed something that seemed like it was incredibly overwhelming to be simpler because it can be automated. And people can put their information into this electronic form and keep it and then just keep updating it and it makes it easier for the institution and it makes it easier for people who are reviewing and it also flags you if you say oh you know I didn't update my board list recently or I didn't do that so you, you have some way of keeping track of the information and for many institutions where the professionals that are involved change often and sometimes that memory walks out the door with them. Carol, I'm sure you're familiar with that. You know, now it's in place. It's not in a file somewhere. It's electronic. So it's been a very exciting time. It's always, you know, when there's change, there's always a little stress involved. But it's been a very exciting time to see that happening. And also, there's a mechanism now for people to have just their standard documents done, with a key one being your your mission and vision, your, your strategic plan, which is just your goals for where you think you'd like to go that you can monitor over a a few years, and also just understanding that you have to keep records on collections and you have to do a variety of things. So I think for the future, there would be more and more institutions will say, hey, we can do this accreditation. This is a piece of cake because it will be a lot easier. That's interesting, Terry. Thank you so much. I never really heard it explained so succinctly. And per- and I and to be honest, uh, I never really understood the the uh, the value of it as a living institutional memory. Uh, and I I think as as you say, as people people move through some institutions rather rapidly. Some institutions are are small, and so when that you know staff of three, if they turn over because of retirement or whatever, you really do lose a great deal of history. So these again are historical documents. They're historical documents. They're they're just you know they're tracking tools. Oftentimes, you know, this is where we are. Oh, this was our mission, and, and this year, oh, we changed some words. Well, no one noted that. 
<laughs> you know, it, you know, it's that sort of thing. Or the governance. Have we talked about these these documents? Have we renewed them recently? You know, what impact does this have? So you know, it it is that it is something that makes it all better for everyone. Is it still going to seem like an a, an overwhelming task for some folks? It may, but in fact, it it really isn't. It's just the discipline of doing what we do. That uh, yes, I well the discipline of of doing doing anything. I've just upgraded my uh, my office uh, computer software, and so learning a new discipline it, it it's ringing it's ringing true today. So I can appreciate how how you know it, it it's it's easy as long as you keep it up. As long as you keep. I just upgraded my uh, my phone, and it's just been an interesting week of learning how to use this this, this new right. tool. That's so. right. Um, so how many how many do you know off the top of your head and this is probably an unfair question but do you happen to know what percentage percentage of our museums are accredited well I think there are over a thousand I want to say maybe 1,020 institutions that are accredited right now and there are probably 18 to 20,000 museums in the country that have that have achieved accreditation, which is not to say that there aren't many, many thousands more who probably are very much operating under best practices because that's what their staff does. I mean, that's, that's what it is. So for us, it's getting just more people to say, oh, well, why don't we just take on this task of doing this? And almost every director that I have talked to over the last five years as an accreditation commissioner, they most always said, you know, this was a very good exercise for the staff. Because the staff are the ones that have such tremendous pride in the fact that they did their work, they, they did the detail, they did the visioning, they did all of that. They engaged the board, they engaged the rest of the staff, they engaged the community because part of this is engaging the community. You know, is the community actually coming? Are you asking them what they want to see or want to do? They've done that and they feel such pride that they achieved that, that status of having accreditation. So I think and, more and more people will be engaged. And I... Uh, I would think just to just to be clear, and again, this may be for some of our listeners who are not uh, based in the U.S. and and uh, and as familiar with the with AAM. But other than the time uh, that it that it takes to do this, and that is significant, is there any other cost involved to the museum? There, there is a uh, once you get in the program, there's an, uh, a fee to, to join, and I can't remember what that is. Uh, if you successfully get your application to the point where a visiting committee is coming, you sort of have to pay for the cost of the visiting committee to come. So basically, it's not a lot of money. I mean, less than a few thousand dollars. And then every year you have an annual fee that you pay. And I was in, um, on the international issue, I was in um, China with the American Alliance of Museums. I guess it was in 20... Oh, I'm losing track of time, in 2011, where we went to talk to them about our accreditation and standards. And then, of course, they had, this is among the antiquities museums, um, which we would call history museums, um, they had their own accreditation, which was um, considerably more rigorous, shall we say, than, mm. uh, than uh, 
what we had established at that time, because it was much more data-driven and it was much more um, hands-on, you have to have things done this way. And so everybody, probably every continent, has their own vision of how to go about this. The International Committee on Museums, the ICOM, uh, doesn't particularly have an accreditation program, Carol, but they do have standards, and they and ethics, which are drive a lot of their process, which in a sense is just as rigorous uh, as an endeavor. In each country may have its own form of accreditation, which is one thing that you know I've learned in exploring various various places. And I also was the cultural liaison also in 2011 to. Um, Columbia, South America, uh, where I talked about uh, uh, accreditation and standards uh, with the institutions that I visited there who have their own standards and they have their own way of dealing with things. And what was very insightful for me and something that I've, that I've expressed um, at accreditation meetings, that as we talk about institutions from other continents that want to be accredited under the American Alliance of Museums. There is a botanic museum garden, I guess you could call it, in Australia that is accredited. They decided that they want to undergo our particular type of rigorous program. And the more you do that, you have to understand what it is that the environments of these countries are, are doing and needing. So accreditation kind of ebbs and flows with where you are, but the standards are still the same, like the standards of good medicine are still the same, but it's always relevant to your environment. So to me, it's just exciting. You know, I, you know maybe I'm a museum geek at this point, but I, I think what attracted me to the field from being, you know, a historian was the fact that there were these things that transcended whatever the subject was that made these institutions museums and made them places that should be engaging the public. Because I've run, you know, I've run a couple African-American museums, a children's museum, transportation museums. I've headed multiple institutions. I've brought big, big centers online. But for me, the kernel that exists for all of them has always been, A, that this should be done the best way that it possibly can be done, and that varies per institution, and that we are there to engage the public. And we want the public to walk away with some sense of what it is that we are trying to do, and that we are open enough to accept the fact that sometime. What we think we're doing, we're really not doing, but let's figure out how we can get closer to that goal. Or maybe we need to change the goal. So it's the willingness to be reflective that is so important. And to me, that is what accreditation is all about. It is the willingness of an institution to be reflective. Can I stop and think about what it is that I'm doing and not be you know, kind of push back that somebody is willing to say, hmm, you didn't really, that's not really happening. But how can we get closer to that? Or maybe we need to move the target. So, so that's how I look at it. 
Well, that's that. Thank you, Terry. That's that's great, uh, and very very helpful. It is sort of uh, you know the, the Zen of of uh, and the art of museum management. Uh, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, Terry and I are going to continue to talk a little bit. So stay tuned. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. We'll be back in a minute. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvin Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I have been having a delightful conversation with Terry Rouse today. And Terry, in our last segment, I I don't want to let you get away without talking a little bit about professional development and your your opinions. Again, you you uh, work you've worked in a lot of institutions. You have been uh, this you know the director of of the institution. You have uh, nurtured and cultivated and hired and probably fired some staff uh so what you know 
where uh, you know professional development you know we can talk about ongoing professional development of uh, of of existing staff and also just the proliferation of uh, of museum studies programs that are that are training new staff uh, where do you want to start oh man that's a, it's it's a it's a, an important topic and it's a, a vast topic you know I, I believe so strongly in professional development. I mean, I'm an, I guess it's, I'm an educator, so I know the more that you can train your staff, even though they may get quartered off to get other jobs, but the more, the, the better that they will be able to help your visitors and help your institution or help your scholarship or help your research or whatever the case may be. So somehow institutions need to be able to make professional development a part of the culture, and sometimes that's not sending them off to um, to conferences. Sometimes it's saying, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to get this person and that person to come in and talk to the staff, and they're going to talk about their experience, or they're going to bring some new tool they have, or and so it becomes a culture of. The everyone understands that there are new things out there all the time. They're old things, and we need to reflect on what we're doing. Hey, we may be doing some okay things. We may need to tweak this, but we're always doing it. So hopefully the senior staff or heads of departments are understand that that's a part of what they should be doing is bringing expertise to, to help. Sometimes you're bringing people in as an educator, you know, to talk to your docents. You know, because the more your docents better understand something, not just from the regular people that they've been talking to, they can they can gauge people better. For your senior staff, is it your ability to understand better ways to use dashboards for for reporting? Is it understanding, you know, that everything is holistic, at least in my mind, holistic in an institution, so they all should be talking uh, in, in some circle so everybody doesn't get into your classic, you know, this is my department, this is my silo. So you work towards making sure that that is the culture. Now, that's hard work. I mean, you have to keep, you have to keep doing it. And then for your staff who need technical skills, you know, that need brushing up on collections management or how to better use a piece of software or to acquire software, there are always little workshops you can send people to. But more importantly, you can simply call an institution in another town and see if your staff can come over and spend a day or two. Yeah, but it's taking the initiative to know that you can do those things um, because that type of, of sort of self-immersion into an institution makes a huge difference. And usually the museum professionals will tell you the classic thing, well, I don't have time to do that. Or, you know, we're, we're always in a state of crisis. I don't have time. But I think as management, you have to understand that that is time well spent. And, yes, you can figure out a way to deal with it for that short period of time and do what has to be done. So that's what I, I mean. I really believe in professional development and being creative about it and doing it because it makes your institution better. And one of the things that as accreditation commissioner in the week, was always the question, what about professional development? Because if you were doing a site visit, you would often hear staff say, well, I need better training here, or I didn't know about this. And, and it's all about not knowing. So 
How do you help them know something? And now the proliferation of museum studies programs. So I'll be true confession here for you, Carol. I actually participated in New York University's museum studies program for about half a semester. And you're going to ask me what year was that? It was probably 1979. Um, and I ended up saying, well, you know, I've got all these degrees. Let me just do this work and not try to focus on two things at a time. And that was in 1979, where there weren't a lot of museum studies. Flora Kaplan was the uh, head of New York University. But what was the museum studies program? What was good about knowing Flora Kaplan, when I went to the New York Transit Museum, we hired the graduate students of Flora Kaplan to New York University to help us establish the archives for the Transit Authority. Why? Because I knew that she probably had trained them the best. And these were students who wanted to learn, and what better way to do that than to try to deal with this overwhelming number of material that, that was produced. So I think museum studies programs are, are essential, but we also as a profession need to have jobs for these young people who are coming out and real hardcore understanding of the field, that they can go into fields, they don't have to work for peanuts, that they can acquire a broad spectrum of skills. Yes, you're a collections manager, but you can also be, you know, a, an executive and you can also be a curator or you can also be a registrar. So encouraging them that it's gathering multiple skills that will allow them to be better at what they're doing and also allow them to be willing to seek other jobs. Because oftentimes in our profession, you know, people need to understand, well, maybe I can't grow in my institution here that has six employees, but I can seek to be in an institution that has 60 employees. And the way to do that is acquiring more skills. If not on the ground, through workshops, through engagement, through professional development opportunities, one or two days somewhere else. And I'm going to say the simplest thing about this is the willingness to want to do it. I can't tell you the hundreds of people that I have hired over the years, Carol, and the thing that inspires me the most, no matter what age it is that I'm interviewing somebody for, when someone says, and you know, I really would like to know more about this particular type of skill or this particular approach or this particular theory because now I know I'm hiring an active learner. And an active learner is the best employee, I think, in museums because that's what we are. We're educational entities. And if you're willing to be that active learner, if you're willing to be that person to add to the profession, then you're going to be a valuable tool no matter what institution that you're in because you're, you're saying, wow, that's why we're here. Um, so I think... It's jobs for people coming out of schools, the, the willingness to have them understand what the, the profession is, to understand that they need to know that they don't have to work for peanuts, that we need to challenge governance in, in any entity, that you don't need to pay someone a master's degree $30,000. You, you need to invest in your people because their skills are just as good as the physician you saw last week for your coal. So it's valuing the profession, and I think the, the museum studies programs are helping to do that. Those of us in the institutions then have to turn around and value people for it and then make sure that we keep those skills sharp and keep them wanting to be part of it. 
I think you made a very, very important point there is that the most important skill, whether you've gone through a museum studies program or, or coming out of an academic field or an economic field, is that you, you continue to be that active learner. I think that has been one of my concerns with some of these programs is that we are inadvertently uh, communicating to these young people that if they take a registrar's bent, then A, they'll get a job as a registrar, and B, that's their path. And for most of us in our generation, we know that we We've had, I don't know about you, but I've had about seven careers. Oh, oh and <laughs> Well, Terry, it has been an absolute uh, pleasure talking with you today. Uh, in just the uh, minute that we have left, what's, uh, what's on the horizon for you next? Oh, that, that's a good question. I'm, I, Carol, I have the luxury for a, a little bit of kind of going out here and exploring some projects, and hopefully um, there will be some things that will come through either as on my consulting or, or in the, the professional realm. You know, I'm one of these people who is going to work forever. Uh, Janetta Cole at the uh, Smithsonian's African Art is my role model. I think she's like 78 or something like that. Um, of course, you know, I've, I've done interim work. You know, I seem to have this wonderful skill set to go out and, and uh, help institutions when they're in transition and deal with change, which, again, it comes from my ability to, um, to parachute in. And, you know, my passion truly is governance. I, that is the thing that I, I love, strategic planning. I, I love visioning with, with organizations. So hopefully, you know, there will be uh, some experiences out there uh, available for me to do those types of things uh, as I have in the past. So it's, uh, I'm looking forward to the future. Great. Well, and I'm sure that many of our listeners, uh, if they didn't know you before, they now have a much better understanding of of, of you, and they will be uh, uh, knowing that you're the person that they can turn to for help. Uh, Terry, it has been a great pleasure. Again, let me welcome you to Washington, and uh, I'm sure we will uh, we will touch base here in in the nation's capital uh, very soon. Thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. And uh, we will be back next week with another uh, episode of Museum Life. Again, uh, remember you can always reach me at carol.bossard at verizon.net to answer your questions, uh, listen to your concerns, and uh, maybe even have you on the show. Uh, So stay tuned. Thank you for listening. This is Carol Bossard for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.